Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail, and this week we have Aaron Luo. Aaron's the co-founder of both Kara and Mercado Famous, which is a new charcuterie company, um, and I love charcuterie, so I'm excited to talk about all of that, but also just get into being a new brand, learnings from the old brand, etc. We'll get into that all. But Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Kale. Long long time fan of uh, of the of the program and 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 of yourself. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Thanks. I'm excited too. Well, first for those who don't know, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, you know, Mercado Famous is new, but uh, you're a co-founder of another brand that I bet you some of our listeners know about. Well, my name is Aaron Luo. And I'm the co-founder and CEO of Kara uh, and Mercado Famous, like Kyle mentioned. Uh, Kara is a modern handbag brand. We're really known for high-end functional handbags for the woman on the go. And uh, recently, we launched a second brand, uh, also in the native digital realm. I think the term keeps changing a little bit, but uh, <laughs> um, you know, our mission there is to bring the best we can from Spain into the U.S., starting with charcuterie. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you're from Spain, right? And that's sort of what, what you and your co-founder, right? That's correct. That's correct. So I'm Chinese by background, um, but uh, my co-founder and I, we both grew up in, in Spain. Uh, she grew up in a town called Valencia, uh, which is a coastal town on the east side of Spain. And I was raised in Madrid, which is the capital right in the middle of Spain. Uh, we both came to the States for college and kind of stayed in New York specifically. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure we're going to get into it. But, you know, that was kind of the genesis behind why we started Mercado Famous. It's kind of our homage to our heritage a little bit, our time spent in Spain. And honestly, just want to bring good food and, and you know, the best we, we think we can get from, from Spain into the, uh, into the American society or into the American demographics. How did this idea come about? Because going from handbags to, you know, Spanish food is a, is a pretty big leap. So what, what was the story behind that? Yeah, it's it's uh, it was an interesting story. So, uh, Carmen and I, we both come from fashion, and you know that's why initially we started the Kara, uh, right? The idea was that back in 2013, 2014, when we started the Kara, um, we felt that there was a gap in the marketplace for a bag that can transition with her for inside and outside of the fitness studio. Hence, we started the bag that's transact tra- transitional um and and can transform according to her lifestyle um back around 2017 2018 you know we started to thinking about the idea of expanding into a second brand you know we started getting a lot more involved in investing a little bit in our side helping other entrepreneurs to start new brands and we kind of proposed the question of if we were going to start a brand of our own a second brand that is um what would that be and, you know, we keep going back to Spain, right? Just because, you know, this is before COVID, you know, we used to spend a lot of time in Spain on a yearly basis. Um, funny enough, every time we come back to the U.S. from Spain, the number one thing we bring back is charcuterie. I mean, for any of you, um, and and sounds like you've spent some time in Spain yourself, but, you know, everyone who goes there, I mean, jamón, chorizo, all the charcuterie that we, we love from Spain, it's probably the one of the key things that we struggle to get in the States. Hence, we always try to bring it back, you know, in every single trip that we have. And the reality is that, you know, it was very difficult to find high quality, well-priced product uh, within the charcuterie of Spain in the States. So we started really looking into the space and found that, honestly, it's a little bit of an unserved category. Um, everything felt very mass, you know, everything felt very 
Boris Head, you know, Oscar Mayer, um, you know, everybody in terms of the brand story and branding keeps talking about quality and heritage, which is great. But we just felt that there's a newer and younger audience that someone neglected, right, in terms of how the brands are trying to talk to them or not trying to talk to them. So, you know, the mission behind Mercado was to bring not only the best we can find from Spain when it comes to charcuterie, but kind of change the narrative around charcuterie a little bit, right? It's that, yes, quality comes by default, but we also pay attention to sustainability, to how we raise our pig and how we prepare them, how to the point of how we package them, how we ship them. Um, you know, we pay a ton of attention to sustainability and eco-friendliness. And those are some of the key values that we're building into the brand from the get-go. So started with an idea of exploration in terms of, hey, is there a business here? Can we actually build, you know, a DTC native digital brand around you know, Spanish products uh, for maybe a younger consumers. And two years later, you know, here we are launching the brand, uh, which has been a, a, a kind of a roller coaster. You know, it's, it's going up for now. Um, so fingers crossed and see how, how things will go. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of a little bit of a background in Genesis. How did you build out the supply chain for it? Because the supply chain for handbags is very different than, than Spanish meat. Uh, and like, did you have connections before with purveyors and pig farmers, et cetera? And, you know, how how, how direct is the product to, to, to getting to the consumer? Like, how did you build all of that out? Yeah, that's a great question. That's probably is the main reason that it took us about three years, close to three years to launch the brand, just because we wanted to get it right. The reality is you can find industrial industrialized pig farms and, and meat preparers, um, uh, Fairly easily to a certain extent. They might not have the export license and there's some you know logistical things that, that's involved in, in in finding those suppliers. But reality is that you know if you want to go fast, you can find them pretty easily. But we didn't want to take that route, right? We wanted to find a partner that we can stand behind that really understands how to raise the pig, um, how to sacrifice the pig, how to prepare the pigs. Of course, we have to love the recipe at the end of the day, because you know that that really kind of makes the 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 product what it is at the end of the day. So we really took our time, you know, and in the beginning, to your point, you know, a lot of people looked at us and say, hmm, high fashion and meat, you know, I don't get it, right? And but you know, when we start talking about kind of our story, which really at the end of the day is we miss kind of the gathering of the Spanish culture, right? I mean, bringing food to the state is one thing, but really behind all that, our our hope really is to kind of you know teach and, and show a little bit more of the Spanish culture, which is family and friends coming together, sitting at the table, enjoying a glass of wine and eating tapas, right? So that's kind of the culture we're trying to to bring it back, you know, kind of reminiscing from our childhood. And when we explain that to a lot of suppliers that we actually had a chance to meet, they get it right away, right? And they actually feel very honored and proud to actually have these kind of conversations with us because, you know, Spanish charcuterie, it's it's one of the prides of Spain. And to be able to actually carry that banner and, you know, potentially bring it to a country like the States, I think a lot of people are excited about that idea. So, um, yes, it took a lot of time to find the current supplier and the current farm um, for those reasons only um, that I mentioned before. But that was the uh, that was a challenge. That was a challenge. But you know, we we looking back, we couldn't we wouldn't have done it differently. I think supply chain is one of the key reasons why it makes the product shy and makes the brand story unique and authentic. 
do you foresee this always being direct to consumer? Uh, how, like, like what is, because uh, Kara, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have, you have some strategic wholesale partners as well, right? That's correct. You know, it's, it's, uh, so we started the brand. So, so to answer your question, Kara, you know, we're about 90% DTC. You know, we work with, you know, some very strategic wholesalers such as Gap, Athleta, um, a little bit with uh, Nordstrom, ShopUp, and so on and so forth. So, and we're very proud of our partners. We select them very carefully and we've built a great relationship over the years. But the brand was DTC. And honestly, you know, the reason we feel very confident starting Mercado Famous back in 2018 is kind of all these scar tissues and the learnings we've had in the DTC realm, right? Um, mm-hmm. In terms of how to acquire a customer, um, not just how to acquire a customer, but how to retain a customer and how to tell the story once they're into the funnel, into the family or bought into the brand. Um, that's something that we felt that we still don't know. We're still learning and still kind of it's it's a, it's a continuous process, but we, we've had enough scar tissue to have some lessons learned to be translating to Mercado Famous. I think for Mercado Famous, the initial brand was set up to be DTC only, to be honest with you. But the reality is that, you know, after the launch, we've had so many great inbound requests for um, wholesale. Bear in mind, you know, Hamon in general, it's a, a product that hasn't really been told the right story, I think, in the States. I think when you think about prosciutto, right, the, our Italian counterparts, mm-hmm. um, everybody knows about the prosciutto, the pepperonis, the the um, the coppas, right, the, the gabigouls and so on and so forth. But, you know, when it really comes to Spanish charcuterie, I think the story is somewhat still new. And it's fresh, it's cool. So that's why a lot of the specialty stores and larger chains are starting to have conversations with us. I, you know, I, I I don't know the store uh, the, the answer to how the distribution is going to end up being. I think uh, wholesale will have a bigger play in Mercado Famous than Cara for sure. When did you officially first launch and what was the launch plan? How did you go about that? Yeah. So we launched in, in the beginning of the summer. So June is when we launched the brand. So, you know, we're fresh fresh out of the box, if you may, yeah. or fresh out of the press. Baby brand. A hundred percent. Still, still not even crawling yet. Still just <laughs> moving our hands a little bit. Um, you know, and we we had a good debate, you know, with our PR team and and specifically around, hey, are we going to do a big band approach, right? Um, or are we going to do kind of a a, a a steady learning? So it's kind of like start, see how it goes, and then slowly start investing in different, you know, activations or or so on and so forth. And we kind of ended up going with the ladder. Um. You know, we didn't want to go out there with too lot of a band just because we want to first just kind of test the market a little bit. But in reality, you know, and you probably know this as well, if the product is good and you, you know, find the right partners from the PR standpoint to actually tell the story, you're going to start getting a lot of buzz and you start getting a lot of inbound requests. So, um, yeah, so far, I think, you know, our DTC on the DTC side, the numbers are definitely growing and and we're encouraged by what we're seeing. It takes time, you know, Kyle, I think on the DTC side, and and you know you probably know this as well from all the brands you've had the chance to to interview in the past. You know we're not in 2013, 2014 anymore, right? So customer acquisition is very expensive, and to a certain extent, even if you acquire the customer, I think it's a big question mark in terms of how you're going to retain them. You know I always joke around with our our team that to me, to a certain extent, LTC LT you know LTV is almost like a made up number to a certain extent. You know, I feel like it's a number that marketers make it up to actually <laughs> drive certain behaviors. To me, LTV, at least for now, for us, equals your AOV, 
right? Mm-hmm. So your, your average, and I'm throwing a lot of terms out there. Again, LTV is long-term value of the customer. You know, when you don't really have a brand, when you're new, it really equals to your average order value. So it really equals to your first purchase. And, it, you know, my thought is that actually, instead of really go heavy on customer acquisition from the get-go, um, our thought is actually to play more of an organic role a little bit in the beginning. So really, you know, counting on press, influencers, um, you know, celebrity and partnerships and so on and so forth. Really rely on that route, see the reaction we get from the market, and then start thinking about heavily investing on advertising and performance marketing and so on and so forth. So, um, but yeah, it's been, it's been uh, like I said, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster since we launched, but so far all, all going up. So, you know, knock on wood, you know, uh, hopefully we don't, we don't, we don't come down anytime soon. That's great. So, so what is your AOV right now? If you're able to say, yeah. So, I mean, ranges a little bit, right? So it, right now it's still between 65 to 95. So that's kind of where, where we're more or less at. Uh, obviously we like the number to go high and there's different ways that we're thinking about ma- making that number move. It's an interesting actually proposition because initially when we started the brand, you know, our products ranges from, you know, as low as 995, right? Kind of that single pack of our uh, sausages all the way to $300, which is our whole leg. And, you know, the reality is that in the beginning, you have a targeted AOV, but you really don't know what the AOV is going to land. And of course, you know, you don't want to work with a brand that's having so low of an AOV that you don't have a lot of wiggle room for all the variable costs and base cost things that you want to do. So, you know, and and it's a big question mark in the beginning. It's like, are people really going to spend, you know, 30, 40, 60, 100 dollars on meats, right? And so far, again, the brand is baby, it's new, so we don't really know what you know the future is going to entail. But so far, it's showing that the people actually are resonating with our brand story and actually are trying the brand for the first time. Hence, we're seeing some decent AOV, like I mentioned before. My challenge, I think, and then again, this probably is the same for a lot of modern brands, our DTC brands that are starting now is, you know, to a certain extent, acquiring them the first time is easy. Just because it's fresh, it's new, you're flashed in front of them with some kind of a cool creative, maybe through ads, maybe through a press, they will convert the first time. The key thing is how do you retain them? That's uh, that's a big question for us in terms of how we want to go about that. I want to get into that because I I think you're in a an interesting category, and it strikes me that ordering you know meat and charcuterie online is for a special occasion or for a gift. And so what what are you seeing people are buying? How are they buying it? And what, like, how is it sort of a, a customer retraining in terms of making them think they could they could get this on a recurring basis? Yeah. So, so the goal for the brand is to go mass to a certain extent if we can. That that was the the hope behind the brand. So, you know, if you ask me what are my dream and aspirations, you know, we want to be the prosciutto, or, or not to substitute the prosciuttos of the world, but really kind of be another option for that purchaser when they go. If she is buying or he is buying for prosciutto, we want to be you know an alternative to her, right, or to him. Um, so. Of course, you know, the Italian charcuterie is a lot more penetrated into the American household for a number of different reasons, right? I think the they, you know, we have a much larger Italian immigrant population in the States dating back to, you know, over hundreds of years, right? And of course, when those immigrants came to this country, they brought their food with them. Hence, you see, you know, 
the pizzas, the 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 charcuterie, all the Italian heritage, um, and the food being widely distributed and penetrated just because of the population that initially came. The Spaniards and the Spanish, it's a little bit different. Um, not a lot of them came to the United States. A lot of them went to Latin America. The population of Spaniards in the States is relatively low. Point here is that there's a little bit of a retraining. Not retraining, but it product education takes a little bit of time. So our hope is to ultimately help the consumers to really understand what is in jamon, right? Or what is a chorizo, or what is a sartichon. And, you know, again, hopefully if you are thinking about consuming charcuterie, that would be one of the strong options for you on a, on a recurrent basis. The second type of customer, which I think you touched on, is um, the customer that buys it for special occasions, right? So for example, you know, our... A whole leg. So whole leg of jamón for, I'm sure you know what it is. And for those of you who are familiar with the Spanish food or have been in Spain before, it's basically a whole leg of pig that's been cured minimum of 18 months. It can go all the way up to 36 months. And, um, you know, it's a very typical product consumed during holidays in Spain when a lot of households you walk into, they will have one leg of ham sitting on their counter. Essentially, you're just carving it um, every time you want to consume a little bit of uh, of meat. Um, I guarantee you that if you put one of those things in your kitchen table during Christmas or during Hanukkah or during um, um, Thanksgiving, it's going to be you know a conversation starter, right? It's like, wow, a piece of leg that what is it right so the second type of customers that we have are the ones that buy in for that right they're buying them for the thanksgiving gathering that they're hosting their family coming over and they're the one who is showcasing kind of this kind of food for that special occasion so again a little bit of education there as well but that's the seventh second type of customers that we're, we're catering or we're targeting all right we're going to take a quick break right now we'll be right back after this message from our sponsor did you do any sort of customer research before about sort of shopping patterns specifically with meat? Because, you know, I, I think meat is a really interesting thing. The way that I personally, you know, think about it or with my friends is like you maybe you get it at a grocery store. Maybe you go to a butcher. But then there also are all these this long history of like mail order companies that had like the nicer things. And so is that like how, what did you do to to figure out how people would interface with your product? And were there any surprises along the way? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a gamble in the beginning because to your point, the data show that over 68% of the American household still shops in grocery stores. So, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, pick your favorite grocery store, you know, whether it's Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, West Highway, you know, whatever you whatever you shop, you know, you, you essentially always gravitate towards the product that you usually go and get, and then you grab it on the go. And the data still shows that's a prominent part. But of course, COVID changed a little bit of all that. Um, and I haven't really seen any recent data post or during COVID. So I think it's still a little bit of a unclear in terms of how COVID really changed the grocery purchase behavior. The reality is that we all know more and more online purchase, it's a thing. Um, for even when it comes to grocery category, right? So, you know, for the limited test that we've done so far before and now after the launch, um, you know, the amount of customers are still not willing, but used to purchase food online or meat online, it's still small. It's still less than 40%. So that's why, you know, to a certain extent, that's why I was saying before, even though the brand initially is set up to be a DTC brand, counting on the fact that, 
hopefully COVID will change behavior a little bit. The reality is I think it will take a little bit of time. Hence, we are going after and probably going to nurture our wholesale program a lot more than we initially thought to kind of get it into the doors, um, you know, the chains and the grocery stores and the specialty stores. Yeah, I was about to say, do you have a sort of, you know, list or dream board of like who, who you'd want to be in? Would specialty stores be your number one or would it be a Whole Foods or I don't know, like, I don't know if Erewhon sells meat. They probably do. But like, you know, something like that. Yeah, that, I do. I mean, you, you know, it's, you know, obviously, I think, you know, you would think that the natural response or ideal target wholesale partner is, is the Whole Foods of the world. And, and I love mm-hmm. Whole Foods. And there's a lot of conversation happening on a lot of different fronts um, that, you know, hopefully we can announce some few things, you know, very soon. Um, the reality is that, I, you know, learning from Kara and having worked with a lot of the kind of the chains and, and larger partners, we actually rather start small, rather mm-hmm. start small for a number of different reasons. Distribution is one of them. You know, there's a lot of infrastructure costs actually that comes with larger distributions that we want to make sure that we are ready for it. Um, you know, whether it's technology, things like ADI or even, you know, certain regulations that we have to adhere to because you're dealing with food, right? So. I think you know that that's that's one on one hand. On the second hand, we also like specialty store. Specialty stores, you know, and we've seen this with Kara in the early days too. Even though their scale is not as large as some of the larger chains, they they to me they're almost like a influencer hubs, you know, within mm-hmm. their geographic location, right? It's it's you know we talk about influencers, digital influencers all the time on the fashion side. In reality, if you look at you know, those specialty stores, you know, within the radius they're in, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 50 miles, if they're like a local store, you know, the people that goes in there actually rely on them to discover new cool brand or good products for them. Um, I can just think about some of my favorite, you know, specialty stores or sandwich shops where, you know, I can tell you a handful of brands that I discover through them. Sure. Later on, I end up buying them through Target or Whole Foods or, or other larger chains, but the initial discovery was through you know those specialty stores. So those guys are very darling to us, right? In terms of having a great relationship with those specialty stores, just because I think it almost becomes a little bit of a marketing to a certain extent to be able to actually help us tell the story and promote our product to the circle of customers that they have. So you start small and then let's see how things go and then go bigger. So I think for short term, we're going to stick with you know, specialty stores. And, but, you know, of course we are having some conversations with the larger chains as we, as we speak. Yeah. I think like, it reminds me what you're talking about of sort of that Oatly model where, you know, Oatly in California and uh, New York just went to all the, you know, hip coffee shops and said, try oat milk. And then that was more of a marketing push than it was a sales push just because then there were signs that said, you know, now we have, oat, uh, you know, oat milk and no one had ever heard of that before. 100%. And you see that in, in, in food, in fashion, right? I mean, you know, in fashion, Lulu, if you think about how Lulu initially yeah. started, right? It wasn't, you know, mega stores and, or, you know, distribution through, you know, all these different Bloomingdale's or, or Nordstrom's and so on and so forth. It was yoga studios. You know, they were very um, bootstrap, kind of a guerrilla, you know, marketing style, right? Going to very strategic, you know, specialty yoga studios became really, really close to yoga instructors. And they said, like, hey, try this pair of pants. And from there, things started to escalate and start to have the ripple effects. The same thing happened in food, to your point before. So I think it's a proven model. And that's kind of what we're, we're, we're kind of trying to do um, on our end. 
Can you go a little bit into your lessons in brand storytelling? Because I feel like you're focusing a lot with Mercado Famous on this. And Kara, that was, you know, part of it too, is, you know, saying why this is different, what this is, and really connecting with your customer. Are are there parallels between the two that you would say? Are there, you know, mistakes that you made with Kara that you didn't make with Mercado Famous? Or are they two separate entities, two very different types of products that don't necessarily have the same sort of brand building strategy behind them? Yeah, tons of similarities, man. I, I think uh, that's a very good question. And if anything, that's probably my biggest lesson learned from Kara that I'm trying to translate to Mercado Famous and and you know any future endeavors that we we might end up doing is that brand building aspect of things. That's probably the one number one mistake. No mistake, but things that we didn't do on the Kara side that we are doing on Mercado side, which is the brand building. A little bit happened by default because we couldn't afford a lot of brand building in the early days on the Cara. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, so a little bit came from, again, no, not because lack of desire, just because we couldn't afford it to a certain extent that we we actually did the you know the right thing from the get go with Mercado. I think, look, in order for a customer, back to my earlier point, to come back, um, you know, and it's it they have to love the brand. Branding, it's such an important thing. That's part of the reason why I think performance marketing, to a certain extent, actually shouldn't even be a thing in the early days of any brand launch, just because you have to let the brand build up a little bit and be able to tell the brand story before you even hit people with ads. Um, so, so you know, in the case of Mercado, for example, we're paying a tons of attention in terms of how we are communicating, um, not just communicating how we're building the brand, but then of course how we're communicating the brand story. So, for instance, you know, like I said before, we are you know partnering with one of the oldest farms in Spain. Um, that pigs are all cured in literally a cave uh, versus in, in the fridge. So, to give, just give you a little comparison idea, right? Traditionally speaking, if you are in an industrialized uh, setting and when it comes to you know meat curing you you know after the pig is sacrificed and prepared you essentially stick all the meat into a fridge um, it's a fridge slash oven depending on what you want to do with the actual um, actual meat just because you can you know essentially in a, in a human way control the temperature you can turn the dial up and down however you see fit and of course it's a very efficient way of managing or producing meat because you know exactly what temperature to turn it on and you know 18 months later boom you're gonna have a product that you're looking for we choose not to do that for a number of different reasons you know we don't touch any artificial ingredients you know when it comes to curing our meats we actually rely on the reason it's in the cave is because we rely on the air within the region of spain to really help us cure the meats um the humidity you know all that really translates to you know more sweet of a meat it translates to fat being distributed in a very different way the product not being very salty so there's a lot of things to actually play into how the product ends up being that's to us not only just guaranteeing product quality but also brand building and brand storytelling mm-hmm. right so all that's been translate translating to content creation and we believe that ultimately that's what's going to convince the customer to come back afterwards. It's the not just the first purchase, like, wow, fancy packaging, let me try it. That's what's going to take them to purchase the first time. But once they test it and really like the product, or even if they're like, oh, the product is good, let me learn more about the actual brand. That's when you need to do as a brand to really catch their attention. I think, you know, as we get into the new chapter of DTC, 
I don't even know which chapter we're in. Some people call it chapter <laughs> yeah. two, chapter three, whatever the chapter we're in. I think, you know, we are paying a lot more attention to, you know, the lifetime value of that customer in terms of what's needed for that customer to really understand the brand, to bring them into our community, to tell the story. So brand building, you know, I think, you know, coming from the finance background, even though my family has been in fashion for many years, um, that's something that I actually severely underestimated. Um, you know, when I started Kara, uh, we're like, hmm, you know, hey, if you have a good product and the price is right, why do you need to tell the branding? Why do I have to spend all this time in fonts or colors or, um, you know, storytelling or, or, or you know, content creation? The reality is that, you know, that's extremely important. Now, the flip side, just to quickly touch on this. The flip side or the downside of brand building, right? Not, uh, from the brand standpoint, it takes time. You know, it takes a long time to actually build a brand. It doesn't happen overnight. That's another reason why I also think that consumer products or fashion specifically, but also CPG, you know, when you think about your funding structure, uh, venture might not be the right fit, you know, for, I know, and I know you guys talked about this, you know, for some of the past guests that you've had on the show too. Um I I don't think it's a fit. I don't think it's fit because the expectation is very different, you know, in terms of how venture investors are looking into getting the return back versus how brands are thinking about building the brand. When I'm thinking about Mercado, Famous, or I'm thinking about Cara, my timeline is forever, right? I don't have I don't have a five year exit strategy, you know. When I have potential investor talking to us, when they think about what's your exit strategy, I said, see ya. Like I, 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 like I, I don't, I don't think about my, my hope is that when I die, the brand still exists. So that's, that's my timeline. And of course, you know, and, and you have to, to a certain extent, just because brand building takes decades, if not centuries to actually mm -hmm. form. So anyways, that's the, that's kind of the biggest lesson learned, I think, coming from Kara. It's how much attention brands needs to pay attention to branding. Yeah. It's funny. You, you mentioned the VC part. I was listening to an old interview you did, I think in 2018 with Glossy. And um, you mentioned how you don't believe DTC brands should raise VC capital. And I think your reasoning back then is a little different than, or, or I think they, they, they have the same sort of ideas behind it, but you mentioned how, you know, you're giving up control to the of, of your company to someone else and i think now the overall realization specifically for you know a retail business a consumer facing business is that the margin structure probably doesn't work that you can grow as quickly as 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 a, a vc would like you to and so it seems like you're you still believe this that that vc probably isn't right for most brands 100% you know i don't want to say i have a you know like a profit over here in terms of like oh i knew this was going to happen you know the reality to your point Kyle, and, and it, it, it's that you know the 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 venture investors have certain expectations in terms of how to get their you know returns back i mean they're investors at the end of the they're you know their their financial institutions they have to be responsible for you know their investment and their own investors so their timeline is very different. The unit economic is very different. I think it works for tech, right? I remember, and I don't know if I shared this with you in the past. Um, you know, I remember sitting down with a VC. This was, you know, several years ago when you know she was talking to me. We have good rapport, so we we're just kind of talking about if we end up working together, what's going to look like. And in her thoughts, like, look, I give you X money, and I'm simplifying the words a little bit here, but you know, she's like, I give you X money, you give me X percentage of your business, and in six months. We're gonna go back on the market, you know. We're gonna ride on the excitement for your previous round that you know you kind of close. I'm sure you have few people that didn't end up coming into round. We're gonna ride on the excitement. In six months, we're gonna go out there, but we're gonna go out actually ask double the valuation. And I just looked at her and I said, like, you're you're tripping. 
I'm like, how? You know, this is not a tech company, right? Tech company, you give me X amount of money. I go out there and hire 50 engineers. We proof of concept. We get through beta. You know, we get a bunch of customers from board. I can say, wow, look, proof of concept work. My evaluation can double. In product companies, whether it's fashion, CPG, or what have you, it takes anywhere between three to nine months to actually make the product, right? So how do you convince your investors, right, or venture investors that, hey, suddenly six months later, my valuation actually not double when you didn't even have a chance to actually test the product to the market? So, you know, the timelines are very different. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, we 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 shouldn't look at ventures. I think venture investors are also changing the ways they're looking at the brands a little bit too. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's other ways right that i think brands can raise capital to sustain their growth you know i think debt it's becoming a much interesting of a vehicle in terms of helping brands to grow you know I, we are heading into a recession or we're already in the recession so i think the debt structure also would change a little bit because of the interest rates and all that but the reality is that i think it's becoming more and more of a feasible of a channel for brands to tap into versus Maybe 10 years ago, debts were so expensive and the collateral was so high that I think a lot of brands or brand owners don't even look at it. So I, I um yeah, it, it, it will be interesting to see how this pay on in the next five years, you know, as we get into or coming out of the recession and as different investors looking at brands slightly differently. Got it. Uh we're kind of running out of time, but I have a few more questions I wanted to ask yeah. you before before I let you go. Um one, you know, you mentioned how you for an early brand, you think that they shouldn't leverage performance marketing. You're focusing a lot sort of on on the earned media and PR side, it sounds like. So what what are the channels that are specifically really resonating? Are there ones that you're going into that you're finding either people are picking up or influencers are glomming onto? What 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 is working right now with these, these two, three months in? Yeah, so a little bit all of the above, right? I mean, so to be, to be fair, we tested a little bit of performance marketing and, you know, without a lot of kind of expectations in terms of actually working just because the reality is this, right? If you flash a product or brand in front of the customer for the first time, if you don't really have substance in the back end, you know, what's the substance like a lot of PR and, and, and press or influence endorsement or celebrity endorsement, reality is that it's not a credible of a brand. So you're really relying on fancy creative to really co- convert that customer. And that's very expensive. That's very hard. So we test the performance marketing, prove the concept that, hey, look, probably it's not the channel that we should grow. We're still going to be in it, but very, very, very limited, you know, um, capacity, right? So we're still going to be in TikTok. We're still going to be in Facebook. We're still going to be in Instagram. That's not going to go away. It's just, you know, the, the way we allocate our budget is not going to be there. When it comes to press or celebrity partnerships and so on, or partnerships in general, I think it, it's it's still testing. Uh, it's too, too early for us to really kind of make a call and say like, hey, this is where we need to triple down, double down. Um, right now, you know, our goal is really kind of get it into the hands of the opinion leaders, you know, in, in Asia, you know, we don't call it influencers, we call it a KOL. KOLs. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So key opinion leaders. And that's how I think about them, right? Is that people who have a follower around them, people care about what they say. And uh, so these are, you know, restaurant owners, chefs, uh, specialty stores, uh, obviously online influencers that we want to tap into. Um, of course, press plays a huge part in what we do. Um, thankfully, you know, because of our we have a pretty kick-ass PR team and also just because of our connections from the Cara days, you know, we're able to actually leverage our friends and network to actually help us tell the story and try the product, you know? So I think time will tell as far as like what, um, what, what channels actually end up paying, paying dividends. Um, But, you know, I think 
it, you know, it's almost like taking a step back and let the brand be organic for a minute, right? Grow in the next six to eight months before thinking about what worked and then where we need to double down. Last question is, you know, what's what are your primary focuses for the rest of the year? Are you going to ink, you know, a specialty wholesale partnership before 2022 ends? What are you what are you thinking about that you need to accomplish so that you're set up for 2023? Yeah. So a couple of thoughts on the supply chain side, really solidify supply chain partnerships. You know, we are looking at other products that we are contemplating to launch for, you know, 20, hopefully 20 end of then 2022, but certainly 2023. Because at the end of the day, we're not going to be just a meat company, right? The mission behind the brand is to bring the best of Spain at a really affordable prices for the American consumer. So there's a lot of conversations happening in the, on that end. Um, in terms of customer acquisition or just kind of getting the brand out there is, you know, Content creation is a huge part of what we do. So, you know, any, you know, we, we're really looking at beefing up that side of the business as far as helping us do the content creation. So we're thinking about getting that right. And then there are a few uh, partnerships that we're trying to ink down. Partnership six time. And um, you know, it takes a minute to 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 happen. But um, but we're hopefully by the end of 2022, we are we can announce at least one big partnership that we're currently working on so so stay tuned there very exciting well aaron thank you so much for joining this has been a great conversation thank you so much kale it's been uh, it's been fun and thank you for letting us tell the story and thank you for listening to this episode of the modern retail podcast a show by digiday if you haven't already please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it see you next week 